A few days ago, uh, one of the people help, that helps me with Facebook, my Facebook site, posted something I had sent to her that in 24 hours had over a thousand likes. And so I thought I'd share it with you. Some of you probably may follow it. But um, this was a story about two twins, a, a pair of twins. And one, uh, they were in different incubators. One was dying, expected to die, and the other was fine. And a nurse uh, fought against the hospital regulations and had them put in the same incubator. And once they got into the same incubator, the healthier one put her arm around the less healthy one uh, in an embrace. And the one that was supposedly dying, her temperature came up, her heartbeat stabilized, and she made it. So um, the picture comes with it. And it was really something to reflect on for me. I was mostly interested on the level of the response to the story. You know, what is it in us that responds pretty universally to that as a sense of uh, goodness? And my, my experience as I, as I reflect on it is that it really takes us out of our, uh, the small-mindedness of our doings and reminds us of what matters. That the real healing and the real joy in life is it comes from connectedness. It comes from embracing each other, embracing ourselves, embracing life. And we can't embrace life if we're on our way somewhere else. Right? There's that wonderful um, teaching that to be kind, we have to stray regularly from our path that path that we're rolling forward into the future to get the next thing done, right? So tonight's class is really part two uh, and a two-part series on uh, arousing happiness. And I'm basing it on a line from the poet Hafez who says, uh, whereas you, my dear, still think you have a thousand serious moves. You know, he describes this chess game and saints, they're playing with God and they just surrender joyfully. Whereas we think we have a thousand serious moves yet left ahead. And how that map that we live in, and you just ask yourself, is this true? Do I have most moments of the day, do I have a map in my mind of I'm here now and I'm on my way to such and such and these are the things I have to do? Does that resonate for many of you? Yeah, for those that aren't here and are listening, there are nodding heads. So So we're not so much in the happiness business in the sense of expressing happiness. I came in tonight and one friend here, I asked her, how you doing? She goes, oh, I'm happy. And, And everything in me went, yay, you know, you said it, you said it out loud, but it doesn't happen that much. There's a a cartoon of two monks who are meditating side by side, and one looks really annoyed, and he's saying to the other, will you stop yelling out ka-ching every time you reach oneness with the universe? (laughs) Well, I actually was thinking, well, what if here we were meditating, and we agreed whenever you feel really connected or happy or alive, just yell out ka-ching, you know? (laughs) It would be kind of funny. It would be popping around the room, you know? 
but we don't uh, notice the moments of happiness so much and we don't express them, we don't savor them. And uh, in a way, we're wired to experience love and wonder and happiness. We're wired for it. And as we've talked about, and we talked about this last week, we have a bias towards the negative. It's part of our survival brain. So we tend to fixate on the bad news, most of us. We do. So to name it that we need all of our emotions. We need the ones that are called negative emotions. They're, they're part of what allows us to sense when there's a threat and they move us to respond in ways that help us to make it. And on the spiritual path, remember that phrase, you know, no mud, no lotus, right? It, they, they're part of transformation. They open up our hearts. So we need them. And because we have such conditioning to fixate on what's wrong, we also need very intentionally to pay attention in a way that wakes up our hearts to happiness. So in a way, there are two domains of spiritual practice. And one is be with what is, like fully bring your presence to what is. And the other is to make sure that you also include what your mind's not fixated on, but what might serve your freedom. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm glad to. Thank you. The point of the talks on A Thousand Serious Moves is that we're biased towards fixating on painful emotions, on depression, on unhappiness, on judgment, on anger. And so the training is to learn to be with those experiences, wake up out of the stories and be with them, but also to cultivate what's there, but often we don't pay attention to, which is our capacity for happiness, for loving kindness, for joy, for wonder. So it's both. It's both be with what is and cultivate the positive. We're good? Okay. (laughs) A linguistics professor was lecturing his class one day, and he said, in English, two negatives make a positive. He said, but in some languages, for instance, Russian, two negatives still remain a negative. However, he said, there's no language wherein two positives make a negative. At which point, a voice in the back of the room went, yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, so the underlying principle of tonight's... uh, of tonight's exploration, and we'll be reflecting together, um, practicing the strategies that wake up these positive emotions. The underlying principle is this, that where attention goes, energy flows. What you pay attention to, that's where the energy goes. So what that means, the Buddha said it this way. He said, whatever the practitioner regularly thinks and ponders upon, that will be the inclination of the mind. Neuroscientists say neurons that fire together, wire together. 
Now, this is a really key understanding in our lives because if we really got it, if we really got that how we're paying attention, what we're paying attention to is affecting our mood and affecting our inclinations for the future, wouldn't we maybe make some more choices of how we're paying attention? Like if we could remember that? I'm lucky because if I'm giving a talk on something, I have to kind of use that as a filter for things that are going on. So I've had a really kind of a pretty fun week. You know, I, I came in tonight and I left a little late and then the rains came and I watched my mind do what it does because I, I have anxiety about being late for class. So I watched starting to worry and starting to predict ahead of time where the traffic would you know, really clog up and so on. And I said, okay, where the attention goes, energy flows, retention goes, energy. I started, you know, reminding myself of that. And I said, okay, so I don't want to deny that there's anxiety. So I felt, felt what was there. But also the rain was coming down. I have a convertible so I could really hear it playing on the roof. And I love the sound of rain. So I said, okay, I'll pay attention to the anxiety, but I'll also uh, let that wash through. And it was really something that having, just enlarging my attention so that it wasn't fixed on worry thoughts, which of course create a certain biochemistry, which create more worry thoughts. It's not a fun looping to be in. The rain, just listening to those sounds, shifting my attention, not away from, but opening it, allowed energy to flow in a much more uh, alive and freeing way. So it becomes interesting to start noticing what do we spend our time thinking about. And that's not a, a, an invitation to get down on yourself. Because we know that, you know, when we're honest, we're pretty self-centered. A lot of our thoughts are about how am I doing? What do I need to do more of? What's going to make me feel better about life? How are, what am I going to do to have others feel better about me? Me, me, you know. So, okay, so we see that. And it creates more eyeing and mying. This is selfing. If we can see that and know that it actually doesn't create happiness, we can begin to make other choices. The challenge is the patterning to get fixated on the negatives very strong. And I think it's something to respect. Uh, it starts in infancy. That, And again, it's the culture, it's our families, it's our genetics. But we in some way experience very early on what I call severed belonging, where who we are and what we are is not met in a resonant way, that there's not the attunement that we're really longing for. So something happens, either a parent loses their temper and yells or pushes us away or ignores or doesn't respond to our cries or maybe goes away unexpectedly. But there's some, some kinds of severing and their survival brain then fixates on it and looks through life at experiences that are similar when somebody looks or acts or speaks in a similar way that might mean I'm endangered, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be shamed. We filter for it. The painful experiences are the ones that the brain codes. It leaves traces on the brain more readily than the positive. 
So we move through life and we have, you know, I described the spacesuit self that we develop to in some way protect ourselves from the pain, the raw pain of those imprints. And this, this negative bias is, is pretty strong and it's, those are the neuropathways that are, that the mind runs through again and again. The thoughts of somebody's gonna reject me, I need to do this, I'm falling short. The feelings that go with it. So what happens is that we develop strategies to not feel bad. We try to numb and not feel that. And then when we start meditating, so you, just, you hear that meditation reduces stress. You hear that meditation brings a more happy-centered life. So you come to class and you start getting quiet. And what comes up? <laughs> that stuff you've been running away from, right? <laughs> so initially, it can be really difficult. You start realizing, oh, I'm obsessively thinking about stuff that's really causing my biochemistry to have aversion. You start realizing that. Oh, so that's where my tension's going. That's where my energy's flowing. You know, we start recognizing it. And then we start sensing underneath that obsessing, wow, there's some real deep sense of being flawed. I'm saying this because initially meditation actually gets us in touch with the, the patterning and underneath that the raw pain that we've been running from. So then a teacher will say, well, the way through is through, right? Just be with it. And so we start being with it, and funny thing, but we realize that we're not meditating as much, and we realize, oh, we stopped coming to class, and it's two years, and we went, wow, I really got away from that. Well, what happened? What happened was that it was really unpleasant to meditate. It was unpleasant because there were layers of unlived life we were getting in touch with, and, and we didn't want to do that. So we had all these reasons for not meditating. So then we start hearing these teachings about a thousand serious moves that maybe we're going at it too grimly, which is the whole reason I'm going into this riff right now. You will not keep meditating if it's really unpleasant. There needs, it's as Thich Nhat Hanh said, it's not enough to suffer. You have to touch peace too. That's why we have this balancing. Yes, we have to have the courage and bravery to be with what's here. And we need to touch into the bigger picture, into the streams of happiness and love and peace in order to have a space that can hold and be resilient with what's here. It's as if the mind is this garden and we're learning to be with it. And we be with the wildness that's there. And we be with, you know, all the thorns in the garden. But we also do some weeding. And we also plant some seeds of beautiful flowers. So that's all background for me to move further into how do we plant those seeds that allow us more fully to be with the whole of life, not just what's so difficult. But before I go into it, when I start teaching about um, cultivating really positive states of mind, of really being happy, there's a fear that comes up from some people. And the fear is, you know, if I got happy, I might get complacent. I might stop working on myself. I might stop caring about the world and trying to serve the world. I just get complacent. 
what about the suffering in the world? I mean, should I really be spending time meditating and arousing happiness, you know, when other people are having a hard time? And I hear this a lot. So, in a way, just to say that there's really a difference between the kind of self-centeredness that's out grasping after pleasure, wants to possess more, wants to experience more, me, 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 I want, I want, and the quality of heart and presence that arise when we cultivate these positive states. What I've seen is those beings that are really serving uh, true transformation, radical transformation on the planet. I think of the Dalai Lama and his infectious giggle. Like, he loves to giggle. He's got, like, this bubble of happiness in him. And yet he cares deeply about the world. You know, I think of Thich Nhat Hanh, who teaches about eating a peach. A friend of mine left some peaches at my house the other day. They're outrageously good. So I think of Thich Nhat Hanh. He slows down. He says, each bite, and he really savors it. And Thich Nhat Hanh has spent, uh, what is it now, six decades completely dedicated to peace movement and to working against over-consuming and, and trying to be a steward for this earth. I think of Joanna Macy, who's the most dedicated person I know in terms of really working to heal our planet. And her capacity for joy and her humor we do not have to be grim and we do not have to suffer in order to keep motivated to be good. It's our natural goodness that will shine through. So there's a wise balancing that we're exploring here. And it's very easy to get grim. I mean, the thousand serious moves we bring into spiritual life very, very easily. I've been on retreats and I've watched people take it on as the next project of, you know, I'm going to experience the jhanas, which are the collected states of, you know, of concentration, or I'm going to, you know, having these projects, spiritual projects, and getting really intense about them. And if it's grim, it just doesn't work, really. I have uh, one person I'm thinking of. I was teaching a month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. And uh, one of the persons taking the retreat got very focused and quiet, yet he realized that he had gotten too, um, too grim. So he brought his penetrating attention to haiku. Okay? And I want to read you something he wrote. Great Hall... Meditation all. The great hall is silent. Pinto beans for lunch. And now, some lean left, some right. <laughs> Do you get it? <laughs> We're being polite, I think. <laughs> um, he subsequently called himself Haiku Master Jan Tin Faust, which if you know is it's very close, suspiciously close to my husband's name, Jan Tin Faust. So the first step when we recognize, yes, I'm doing the thousand series moves. And you can use it as a filter. You can just stop at any point of the day and say, am I on my way somewhere and is it tight? You know, if we're doing the thousand serious moves, the first step is intention. It's just having that 
desire to be able to be here and embrace this life like that little infant. You had to be here. You have to be here if you're going to embrace this life. To have that intention to plant seeds of gratitude, of happiness. And there's going to be three, three related ways that I'm going to explore now about planting seeds. The first one is gratitude. Uh, gratitude is incredibly powerful practice. It's a natural experience when we're present to feel grateful. And you can actually practice bringing the attention to gratitude and neuroplasticity kicks in. You actually shift from complaining mind to grateful mind. It is freedom. So, research. Uh, I mentioned Marty Seligman last week, who's the, the father of positive psychology, which developed out of this same understanding. It's not enough to suffer. We have wiring for experiencing joy. Why get fixated on the negative? So what he did was he worked with some severely depressed people and he had them write three good things that happened to them for 15 days. So each day they'd write the three good things. At the end, 94% had a decrease in depression. 92% said happiness increased. He says in his trainings, the most effective thing is to pick someone you feel grateful toward, write a one-page letter, Read to that person and listen attentively to their response. Now, what you'll find in each of these ways of planting seeds, there's the contemplation or reflection, but there's also this action you can do. And if you bring it into action, more parts of the brain get involved and it actually lets the positive emotion flower. So you can feel gratitude. I can feel this sense of I'm really grateful that you all want to come and get together and explore these teachings that are so precious to me. So I can feel that, but saying that out loud just now and meaning it, because I do, you know, it, just, it softens. It, it wakes us up. You might decide to have a gratitude buddy. That can be really beautiful which is where you just have one person and you send an email each day. You don't have to say hi. You don't have to have a sign-off. All you do is list a few things you're grateful for. It's a training, and it's a training that can profoundly change your mood. It's a trick also when life is really difficult. How do you frame things in a way that allows you, it's not to be Pollyanna-ish, but just to see a bigger picture to shift things around some. You might remember the story about Saul and Mort. They're, they're walking from religious services, and Saul's wondering if it's okay to smoke while praying. So Mort says, why don't you ask the rabbi? So he goes up to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, may I smoke while I pray? And the rabbi says, no, my son, you may not. That's disrespect to our religion. Goes back, tells his friend what the rabbi said, and Mort says, I'm not surprised. You asked the wrong question. Let me try. So he goes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, is it all right if I pray while I smoke? (laughs) By all means, my son, by all means. (laughs) So 
It's a practice. There's many people that, um, and you might sense, as I know in myself, how much complaining goes on in my mind. So it gets really interesting, and I'll I'll share one favorite story. Uh, This is uh, James Perez, and I think we still have his book here. We, We sell it regularly. It's called Awakening Joy, and it's really good. He's got a lot of good practices in it. And uh, James tells a story. Uh, James is a, a really good buddy, and I've been hearing stories about his mom for years and years. But this most recent one is great. He spent some time with her when she was 89. He went down to L.A. to visit her. She is a self-proclaimed half-full type, okay? okay? Real feisty woman, wonderful woman. So he's sharing with her about the benefits of gratitude, and she's kind of skeptical, like, you know, I'm an old dog, and, you know, it's like I've been half full for a lot of decades. So he turned it into a game, and the game was every time she made a complaint, then she was going to be adding, and my life is very blessed, you know. So the TV's broken, and my life is very blessed, you know. Okay, they forgot to deliver the newspaper today and my life is very blessed, and so on and so on. He was there for a week, and, for the, and he was able to support her, and it actually turned fun. I mean, they had a good time with it. And then he'd call her, you know, over the next few weeks, and he said, miraculously, it stopped. And he said, there was a real revolutionary change in her mood and her attitude. This is his 89-year-old mother. Now, during this time, these last few months that, you know, he was kind of supporting her in it, she was losing her eyesight, which is a really big deal. So I want to read you what she sent him on her 90th birthday. They have a family kind of uh, tradition of sending poems. She says, I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. So I wanted to share that because... It's, this is a practice that if you take on, um, you can do it at any time during the day. I, I sometimes, when I first start sitting, if I'm feeling like I'm in a certain mood, will just take some moments to just reflect on everything that's good in my life, everything I feel blessed for. So let's just take a moment together now. We'll just get a taste, and then we'll move on to the next type of seed we're planting. During this pause, you might begin by just noticing if any part of your body's uh, habitually been tensing itself and see if you can just soften a little. Just relax your shoulders. You might soften the hands. Take a few full breaths. Sense the possibility of smiling into your eyes so the brow is smooth. 
slight smile at the mouth. And see if you can smile into the heart. Just sense that, that openness that has room for whatever's there. That receptivity. And let your mind now go to whatever you feel grateful for in your life. I'd like to invite you to whisper what you feel grateful for. Don't worry because nobody's listening. Everybody else is just reflecting and whispering themselves. So just begin to whisper, I feel grateful for, and then just fill in the blank. Could be a person, could be a part of nature that you love, any experience that you relish. Just let the mind be open and receptive, whatever comes. You might choose one thing that really stands out to you right now and whisper that again. And actually let it be felt in the body. Let gratitude just fill you up. Get to know gratitude. You might just, if, if there's uh, a person that it involves, just imagine just saying thank you. And if it's not, just say thank you to the universe. Just whisper thank you and see what happens. Thank you. And then maybe again, until it comes from the most sincere place that you know. glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. Okay, so that's the first area of practice of planting seeds in the garden. The second is the actual practice of savoring. We move through the day and there are many spots of unpleasantness and pleasantness. But we tend to just kind of roll right over them. And so one of the practices the Buddha described as gladdening the mind 
is to pause and to linger and to immerse in what is bringing delight. This is part of gladdening the mind. E.B. White writes, I wake up each morning torn between the desire to serve and the desire to savor. On the day that I ate my peach, I got this from a friend on the West Coast. (laughs) Our peach tree bore the most magnificent fruit this year, and last night Alice and I picked all the remaining ones before our trip to the Southeast. We had a peach orgy with whipped cream and lots of swooning. Wish you could have been there with us. (laughs) Good email. That's savoring. A lot of swooning. Isn't that great? Hmm. So it takes a commitment to savor. In other words, just as I mentioned earlier, to be kind, we have to swerve regularly from our path. To savor, you have to be willing to stop that engine that keeps thinking it's on its way somewhere else, right? We have to kind of get off that track and just stop. And so when something delightful arises, like for for me it was the sound of the rain, it might be the beauty of the night sky or maybe you're somebody that you love is laughing and you just love to watch them laugh. I mean, it's great to watch people you love laughing, to see them happy. You know, it's really fun. You witness some kindness, just stop. Take it in and sense what does it really feel like to take that in. Find out. It's an investigation. It's, it's been described by psychologists as memorizing the experience. We have many templates for unpleasant experiences. They're very familiar. And we have a sense of a self that's having an unpleasant experience. So what happens when we start really attending to and memorizing and being familiar with pleasant experiences? New neural pathways, Right. So it's a felt sense in the body that we're paying attention to. I mean, I have a a way that I um, explore this on my morning walks, which is that I I do random pauses. Whenever I can think of it, I'll just stop wherever I am. And it doesn't have to be the most scenic spot. In fact, I try to stop. I try to remember and pause in odd places so I can catch myself in that tumbling forward and say, oh, what's it like right this moment? And so that I can come back to that sensibility that this is it. That there's not another time on planet Earth or in this life that we're waiting for. That this moment right here with us all together, us exploring this, this moment, right this moment, this is as much it as anything in the universe. If we don't have that capacity to really stop and open to the kind of timeless sense of this, we'll never really be doing it. It'll be an idea. And we'll always be tumbling forward. So we pause. And we pause when there's some pleasantness and start really, oh, what's it like? For me, I'll pause... And I'll open my senses, because that's the way I do it. I just listen, let the sounds wash through. I'll relax my body and sense that the whole dance of sensations is washing through. And then I start sensing that what I am is that space it's all washing through. 
and there's this vastness and this tenderness and this aliveness and that's all there is savoring just getting to know that so there's an interesting uh, finding when there's research on aging and that is that elderly people are actually not grumpier but they're happier than younger people and again these they might sound too much of a generalization but here's what the idea is that when we're younger we fixate on the future more more about worries and accomplishment and where am I going and what needs to be different and what's going to go wrong as we get older mortality becomes more real And with that, there's motivation to enjoy the moments. And I am aware of that with my mom. My mom, who's now 86, um, much more than when she was younger, will go for a walk and she'll, oh, look at that. And it's a a leaf, and it's a leaf I've seen 10,000 times. Whoa, look at that. Or the fires. This is a beautiful fire tonight because we have a wood-burning stove and we watch the fire sometimes when we have dinner. Or the dinner, or the taste of the food. She really gets into it. She knows she doesn't have that long. She's savoring. Alicia here told me about her father, who's uh, just told me this tonight, I think, 94. His memory's going, and all, you know, his, the aging's happening. He gets frustrated because he used to be really clear and be able to remember everything. Then he says, I'm not going to focus on frustration. He invites her outside. He says, look at that sun. That sun's my friend. He says, this sun is so generous. It's so warm. It's so beautiful. This is, a real, this is real. This is what he does. He has the sense of, of really savoring this life. 94. So Einstein puts it quite simply. He says, there's two ways to live this life. He says, you can live as if nothing's a miracle. And the other way is as if everything's a miracle. Where our attention goes, energy flows. If we are in that jaded place, skeptical, cynical, judgmental, that's the experience we live in, and it's got a very strong sense of self that goes with it. When we start cultivating gratitude, when they're savoring, the self-sense becomes more transparent and there's a light that's always been there that starts becoming more luminous, more obvious, more visible. We're letting something shine. This is, um, the poet Kabir says that when we're really waking up, every leaf teaches us about the Dharma. And there's a story about another Kabir who's a shoemaker who, as he works, he's, you know, he's really savoring and, and enjoying. And he's repeating the mantra, Ram, 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 because Ram's the name of God. And he's just feeling the divine or the sacred in everything. So day in, day out, he's going, Ram, Ram, Ram. Twenty years and one day, Ram appears. And Kabir goes, who are you? And he goes, I'm Ram, you know. <laughs> well, why are you here? Well, I'm here because you've been calling me for years. Now I've come. What do you want? I don't want anything. What? You've been repeating my name over and over. And then Kabir says, I just love repeating your name. And then for the years to come, wherever Kabir would go, he'd hear 
be followed by Ram and the sound Kabir, Kabir, Kabir. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked about two ways of gladdening the mind of some people call it looking towards the good. And one way is that gratitude and one way savoring. The third way is the one that many of you have done with me and in other places called metta or loving kindness, where we pay attention to the goodness in ourselves and each other. And as we pay attention to that, to that light in each other, there's a natural loving that comes. And again, just like with gratitude, you can reflect on it and feel it. Or you can look at someone and say, I love you. And find out how that loving presence actually flowers. Action. Okay? So, how do we cultivate loving kindness? Whatever you pay attention to that softens and opens your heart is a practice of loving kindness. Whatever you pay attention to. This week... Uh, One of my loving-kindness practices was I have a book by Jennifer Holland, who is actually a local author, called Unlikely Friendships. And it's a beautifully illustrated book about different species that have, for different reasons, come together and paired up and and become, uh, you know, have a real loving bond. And it usually happens because it's very young, one, you know, baby gets abandoned and then it gets linked up with another creature who takes it in. So there's a lot of these different examples. And some of them have gone viral and you've probably heard about them. The tortoise and the hippo, many of you probably heard about that. An elephant and a dog, there's a great story about that. One of the ones that touched me was that well-known 230-pound gorilla, Coco. And the pictures were so great, I was just wanted to share it with you. You can find, if you look up gorilla and kitten, you'll see it. Just Google that. But uh, what happened was Coco could sign and communicate amazingly. And um, her teacher was reading her books. And her two favorites were Puss in Boots and Three Little Kittens. Now, Coco got really lonely and restless, and she kept signing that she wanted a kitten. And they were worried, because, you know, this is a big gorilla, and, you know, how is she going to do with the tiny little kitten? But they gave her the pick of a litter, and she picked a little kitten, and she named it. Let's see what she named it. I wrote it down. All ball. All ball. You know, it's like just a little ball. Um, And she was smitten, and she treated it like a baby, and she was incredibly gentle, and she tried to nurse it, and she played with it. Well, there's a sad part to this story because that kitten got hit by a car, got escaped and got hit by a car, and Coco went into deep, deep grief. And this was a real bond. And after a certain amount of time, she was willing to, you know, she was with two, she got two more kittens. And so you see pictures of her then with two more kittens, and they're climbing all over her, and she's again holding them gently. There's something about this bond between species that we sense the sentience and the light that shines through all beings and how we're constructed differently in some ways, but what's in common is so deep and so pure and so beautiful. Again, it reminds us of the goodness. It reminds us of the goodness. That's why all those people liked the Facebook entry with the twins, because there's some innate 
light that shines through when we see one little infant embracing another. It's beyond our rational mind. It's just part of being. So on a research level, we know that as we cultivate loving connection with other beings, we get happier. The parts of the brain that have to do with happiness light up. It just, it's there. Older people with pets are happier. People with, with social networks that are meaningful are happier. What happens is rather than self-centered thoughts all the time, our, our attention shifts. Where energy goes, and where attention goes, energy flows. We shift and we become larger. We become enlarged when we're in love. We're not so caught in that story of a separate self. Parts of our brain light up that are parts that, that, that perceive unitive kind of being. The boundaries are dissolved some. And if we need it, we can get back into that survival self and take care of ourselves. It's not like all of a sudden it's just all, you know, la-la land. But we have access to a part of our being that makes us more whole. Maybe the last story I'll share with you, because this practice of, of loving kindness enlarges us, opens us beyond the small self, and enlarges those that we pay attention to. And this story I heard through uh, Rachel Naomi Remen about a, a uh, physician, head of, head of Department of Medicine on the East Coast, one of the East Coast institutions, and he, saw, he would see homeless women and men, and, and he'd work with them. And one woman in this story would come to visit him once a month. And, you know, it was hard for her to get there. And her speech was sometimes rambling. Her clothing was eccentric. She, she had a, and she had a hard life. But this doctor was not, he was really respectful. He didn't, he, what he was seeing was not, homeless woman, socioeconomic status. He didn't make her into an other. He just saw her humanity, her goodness. And they would talk and she would leave and, you know, it was good. Well, what was interesting, and at first the clinic nurses were really puzzled, is that she would come to the clinic on days when he wasn't there. And she knew he wasn't there. And she simply wanted to go to his consulting room, and she, but she didn't go in. She would stand on the threshold of the room and deliberately place her right foot inside the empty room and then withdraw it. And then she'd put it in and then she'd withdraw it. So she was drawn to this place where there was loving presence. The places where we are seen and heard are holy places. And when we can offer that space, when we sense another's goodness and let them know it, when we sense another's goodness and express our love, we wake it up and bring out that light. When someone really listens to you, accepts you, sees your sincerity, sees your dedication to waking up, sees who you are, it allows that light to shine. It opens you up. It brings it forth. So we'll close tonight um, in a way that I, I hope you enjoy. We'll, we'll do a metta uh, meditation, and then we'll be listening a little to uh, 
something that expresses a bit of the flavor of what we've been exploring. So find yourself a way of sitting that is comfortable, that allows you to be alert. And my sense is that as we explore this garden of the mind, the very first step, coming back to basics, is right in this moment to sense your intention. This, this intention to move towards wholeness, to connect with the fullness of who you are, to wake up these potentials for happiness and love and gratitude is part of this unfolding to wholeness. When we're suffering, it's because our sense of self is organized around something's wrong. Part of waking up is remembering the goodness. So we gladden the mind. We remember what we're grateful for. We commit to savoring. And we practice seeing the goodness in ourselves and each other. You might begin with your own being right now. And just take a moment to appreciate whatever you can appreciate about the life that's right here. And if it helps you to look through the eyes of someone who sees you in, a, in an awake and wise and understanding way, that's fine too. To sense your honesty, to sense your longing to be awake, and present and happy. To sense this growing wisdom and compassion. You might experiment with putting your hand on your own heart. Because part of loving-kindness practice is action and the action of offering kindness through your hand. As you now sense, what is the wish you'd like to offer to yourself right now? What's the blessing? And you might vary the touch of your hand so it's tender and just offer to yourself whatever blessing you might wish for yourself in this moment. And then bring to mind someone who you care about that you'd like to uh, reflect on for a few moments. Somebody who you're close to. And sense what it is that makes you love this person. What do you appreciate about this person? 
You might sense their humor. You might imagine this person laughing and sense their aliveness. You might sense this person's way of showing you love. The look in their eyes when they're loving. And take a moment to imagine letting that person know their goodness. Just imagine that you're expressing what you see. Just even a piece of it. And imagine saying to them, I love you. And just see and feel their response. And let your attention come now to the actual feelings in your heart so you can sense what is this loving presence like? Is it light? Is it warmth? How big does it want to be? What happens when you let that light really be as luminous as it is or that warmth or that energy? Is there any edge to it? Can you imagine that one loving presence that's here, all of us converging, spreading out in all directions as a field of caring so that we can bring to mind now, including in this light and love, all beings. Sensing these hearts, these shared heart space, holding all beings, wishing all beings the blessings of happiness. May all beings be happy. May all beings touch great and natural peace. May all beings know the wonder of being alive. May all beings everywhere realize their essence, the light of their essential being and let it shine infinitely in all directions. And now just listen and feel the sense of the sound, the light in your heart. Just listen. You may be listening to silence. You may be listening to the sounds in the room. You may be listening to the sounds outside.
And just closing to listen to the music of your own heart. These last few moments, it's so rare that we just listen to our hearts. Not having your heart be in any certain way. Really accepting however it is in this moment. But feeling that commitment to listen increasingly to the longing, to the light, to the goodness of this heart. stay and blessings to each. Thank you. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.